it's her story. Motherland, rip on me. Motherland, motherland, rip on me. Feeling black. Maybe that's the reason why they always mad. Yeah, they always mad. Feeling past him. I know that's the reason why they all big mad. I can't forget my history. It's her story. state of Ghana gather for the celebration marking their day of freedom from colonialism. What was once the Gold Coast of British colony now becomes an independent commonwealth. Vice President and Mrs. Nixon represent the United States at the three-day festivities. Native dances and games mark an event of historic importance since Ghana becomes the first Negro colony in Africa to gain its freedom. Premier Kwam Nkrumah chats with Representative Adam Clayton Powell of the U.S. as Ghana's new army passes in review before the American-educated Premier and Deputy Secretary Ralph Bunch of the United Nations. Another feature of the occasion is a beauty contest in which the fairest of the land compete. And here is Miss Ghana herself. First queen of a brand new republic. Before the likes of Thomas Sankara, Robert Mugabe, and Nelson Mandela would burst onto the international scene as the faces of anti-imperialism in Africa, one man stood head and shoulders above his peers as the leading political voice and the very embodiment of Africa's struggle against colonialism. Ghana's first president, Dr. Kwame Nkrumah, took the world by storm as he led his nation to become the first black African nation to gain independence from the European powers. But just as Nkrumah's revolutionary leadership in Ghana would trigger a wave of independence movements all across sub-Saharan Africa, his gradual descent into authoritarianism and his sudden overthrow would also become a familiar story across many of Africa's newly independent states. This is the story of how Dr. Kwame Nkrumah went from being Ghana's messiah and faultless hero to a political pariah whose ultimate demise would lead to wild celebrations on the streets by the very same people that had once loved and adored him. At his headquarters at Christianburg Castle, a 17th century slaving fort from where British governors had ruled the crown colony of the Gold Coast for over 50 years, Sir Charles Arden Clark woke up on the morning of the 9th of February 1951 facing the most difficult decision of his career. His problem centered around a 41-year-old prisoner 
who had been held at James Fort in Accra on a three-year sentence for subversionary activities. In the eyes of the colonial authorities, this prisoner was a dangerous troublemaker who even while in chains was a serious threat to the stability of the colony. According to official reports, the man Kwame Nkrumah was a thoroughgoing communist and in unofficial communications was even described by Governor Arden Clark as the local Hitler. You see, prior to Nkrumah's arrest, the British officials had drawn up a carefully constructed plan for the colony's slow and steady transition into full independence. Under this plan, the Gold Coast was to have what the British called a semi-responsible government, and for the first time in the country's history, there would be a general election to elect a new National Assembly and Executive Council composed of mainly African representatives. And in putting together this plan, the British officials had collaborated with an elite group of Gold Coast lawyers, businessmen, and academics who had long been calling for the reforms. Referred to by the British as men of property and standing, this group of Gold Coast elites had formed the nation's first major political party in 1947, known as the United Gold Coast Convention, and their campaign slogan was self-government in the shortest possible time. Their leader, Dr. Joseph Boache Dankwa, was highly respected by the British and many within the emerging Gold Coast political elite. A bona fide intellectual, J.B. Dankwa has studied law in the UK and was a qualified barrister called to the prestigious London Inner Temple. Spearheading the earliest push for Ghana's independence, Dankwa personally prepared the first draft of his nation's new constitution and also suggested that the new nation be called Ghana, in honor of the 13th century empire of Ghana, located in modern-day Mali. Looking to spread their message to the masses and build popular support for their push for independence, Dankwa and his UGCC colleagues decided that they needed to hire a full-time organizer to help spread their message and galvanize the public. It was here that an unknown activist named Kwame Nkrumah was recommended to them. Nkrumah at the time had been out of the country for 12 years pursuing his studies in the US and England and although he was neither rich nor well-connected, he was politically ambitious, highly motivated and hungry for change. While in the US, he had earned degrees in economics, sociology and philosophy and although he had moved to London in pursuit of a law degree, he got completely distracted by activism as he befriended a number of prominent British communists with whom he regularly participated in anti-colonial protests. But while his activism was food for the soul, it wasn't putting food on the table. The young Nkrumah often found himself short of funds and was in desperate need for a stable source of income. And so when offered a job by Dankwa's United Gold Coast Convention, he grabbed the opportunity with both hands and moved back to the Gold Coast. Nkrumah, Dankwa, and the other founding members of the UGCC, Ebenezer Akoaje, Edward Akufo-Addo, Emmanuel Obetsibi Lamte, and William Oforiata, would all be collectively known in Ghanaian political folklore as the Big Six. In two years, Nkrumah had fallen out with the other members of the Big Six. While Danko and Co. were happy to cooperate with the colonial government's proposal for a slow and steady transition of power, Nkrumah began calling for independence immediately. Nkrumah subsequently broke away from the UGCC and started his own party, known as the Convention People's Party. Unlike the prim, proper, and gentlemanly UGCC, which was well supported by the colony's economic and cultural elites, Nkrumah's CPP was a radical political machine that focused on stirring up the emotions of the masses 
with revolutionary songs, catchy slogans, and provocative posters. The CPP also set up media outlets, which would work day and night to raise anti-colonial sentiment in the public by vilifying the colonial authorities and labeling the UGCC as colonial collaborators. In opposition to the UGCC slogan of self-government in the shortest possible time, Nkrumah CPP would call for self-government now and would declare that the draft constitution prepared by J.B. Dankwa was bogus and fraudulent. speeches, Nkrumah gained a massive following by promising civil servants, office clerks, petty traders, construction workers, and primary school teachers that all of their grievances and hardships would disappear once colonial rule had been brought to an end. Many of his supporters would grow to see him as a literal messiah, sent from the heavens with the sole purpose of freeing them from the shackles of colonial oppression and ushering in a bright new dawn of peace and prosperity for all. his head by the masses, Nkrumah will famously encourage his supporters to seek first the political kingdom and all else will follow. And so even when the colonial government began readying the colony for its first elections in 1951, Nkrumah maintained that the British plan for a slow and steady transition to independence was nothing more than a massive scam. Taking matters into their own hands, Nkrumah and his party members mobilized a mass disturbance with strikes, boycotts, and mass demonstrations, which were intended to force the British to agree to immediate self-government. Following the subsequent outbreak of civil unrest, the governor Charles Arden Clark declared a state of emergency and ordered the arrest of Nkrumah and his associates. Nkrumah was subsequently convicted on three charges of incitement and sedition and sentenced to three consecutive prison terms of one year each was far from stopping the CPP. Nkrumah's arrest would energize his base even more, as his status as a true revolutionary had now been confirmed by the suffering he was enduring for his beliefs. As the general election scheduled for February 1951 drew nearer, early indications suggested that the CPP would gain a majority of the seats. And while in his prison cell, Nkrumah discovered a legal loophole that allowed any prisoner sentenced to a term of imprisonment not exceeding one year to contest for elections. As his three-year sentence was actually composed of three separate terms of one year each, Nkrumah announced that he would be running for office from his prison cell. News of Nkrumah's participation in the elections would trigger a great wave of enthusiasm, which would see Nkrumah's supporters come out to vote for the CPP en masse. As expected, Nkrumah's CPP won the election in a landslide victory, leaving the colonial governor Arden Clark with a serious dilemma on the morning of the 9th of February, 1951. Although Nkrumah still had three years of unspent prison time on his sentence, the new reality was that he had just been elected to high office in a landslide victory by his own people. After weighing the pros and cons, the choice became... Give my history, it's her story. Motherland, rip on me. Motherland, motherland, rip on me. Feeling black, maybe that's the reason why they always mad. I know that's the reason why they all 
Look at my history. It's her story. Motherland drip on me. Motherland, motherland drip on me. Thin black. Maybe that's the reason why they always mad. Yeah, they always mad. Thin past him. I know that's the reason why they all big mad. I can't forget my history. It's her story.